no food causes inflammation predictably and reliably in every person. The most inflammatory thing about our diet is over consumption of energy. If you eat too much energy and then you gain weight and that leads to excess fatty acid deposition in various areas throughout our body, that is the most inflammatory thing that can happen from our diet in most cases. Now, there are instances where someone might have an inflammatory response to gluten due to an underlying genetic predisposition and other factors that kind of led them to have that. So sometimes some foods can contribute to an inflammatory response in people, but to label a food as inflammatory is, is really just meant to, to scare people. And, and yeah. when you see people talking about nutrition from a scary standpoint, I mean, you just want to run away like that. that that's the thing mm -hmm, that you want to okay. run away from the most because that's what creates so many eating disorders. Welcome to Cut the Crap with Beth and Matt, the world's number one no bullshit health and fitness podcast. Are you ready to cut the crap with your diet and exercise, get strong as fuck and build a healthy relationship with food? Then you've come to the right place. Let's, Let's go. If you'd like to support us in the podcast, join our Patreon where you get exclusive content, which consists of monthly workouts you can do at home or at the gym monthly challenges that are either strength, habit, or mindset-based, and access to over 100-plus low-calorie, high-protein, family-friendly meals. These are all designed by a professional chef who is certified in nutrition. These recipes are already in my fitness pal for easy fucking tracking. New recipes are also added each week. We believe that fitness is for everyone, so this is our way of getting you started on your health and fitness journey at a price most everyone can afford. So what the fuck are you waiting for? We'll see you in the Patreon. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Adrian. How are you? I wanted to say, yo, Adrian. Hey, Adrian. <laughs> and I'm like, I know you must hear that a lot. So so I don't anymore <laughs> because the population has aged a bit. I used to hear that a lot. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying it. <laughs> okay. So yeah. Okay. So I'm a little bit elder. Okay? I, I used to yeah. hear that a lot from <laughs> all of my friends' parents growing up and all of like people my age will say that now, but most people, I don't, I don't hear it as much anymore. It was very common, like in the early 2000s, for sure. Oh my God. That's amazing. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Awesome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm excited. So you are a PhD. Um, you have a PhD in nutrition, correct? Yes, I do. Amazing. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little background for your, of yourself for the audience? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I got a PhD in nutrition and health promotion. I graduated with that in 2015. I originally planned to teach at a university and do research and all of that. Um, but social media and online and all of this has really created some new opportunities where I feel like I can reach more people. It's pretty cool. Like I, I can yeah, right? impact more people through these various channels than I would teaching at a university. So I kind of realized that Several, like shortly after graduating, I was still on the academic route, but there's a lot of, a lot of reasons to leave academia for people who have been in academia. It's just, it's a very demanding job with not, not as much of a reward as most, most people would think. So definitely um, have been in the last like six years or so since I left uh, academia, been creating programs online. So created a whole bunch of group programs, worked with probably over a thousand people, definitely over a thousand people at this point, like started working one-on-one -on -one with people with various health conditions and have been doing that for quite some time, creating content online. And then have recently started creating a little bit more content on Instagram and things like that. And something that I've have developed a bit of a name for 
is just calling out misinformation and, yes. and BS because myth busting. Just yeah, it's just it's it's what I run into every single day when someone comes to me, particularly because I work with a lot of people with digestive health issues, and they'll come to me. You have IBS, IBD, something like that, and and they've done some crazy shit, and it's 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 bothersome, uh, yeah. and that's what really led me to go down this route of really talking about that a lot more on social media is I just see people being harmed by mm -hmm. misinformation, by predatory marketing. It's just, it's really easy when someone has a health condition, if you have a hormone issue, you have a digestive issue, you have an autoimmune condition, the the marketing strategy is really easy in order to get them into whatever you're trying to get the, get get them to believe because they're desperate. The medical system often didn't give them much options in terms of nutrition and lifestyle. So all you have to do is step in and say, the medical system is, you mm -hmm. know, they don't care about you, but I do. And I'm yeah. going to come in here and give you an answer to all of your problems. And the reality is there's usually not an answer. That's why they didn't get one from their medical doctors, because some of these things are just really complicated Definitely. and there's not a clear answer. But if you step online on social media and say, I have an answer, do this nutrition plan and take these supplements, you can make a lot of money doing that. And when I first got online, I signed up for some marketing programs. And this is mm. probably one of the reasons that I talk about this as well. I was disgusted. Like they, they started putting together my ads and stuff. And I was disgusted by the way that they were marketing stuff on behalf of me. Yeah. And mm. so I had to like pull back. I spent thousands of dollars and I was like, I can't do this. Like in, it was exactly what I described. Just like going after individuals who had chronic health issues and promising them the world and you can get away with that stuff online in charging them an insane amount of money on the back end to say like, Hey, work with me for three months for $5,000 because I have this special program. It's right. really, really predatory the way that a lot of the stuff is Absolutely. going online. It's a, it's like a fucking epidemic really. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it, the sad part is it's, targeted towards the most vulnerable people. It's literally targeted towards mm -hmm. autoimmune diseases, gut issues, hormone issues, people with kids who have like autism and things like that, where a lot of these people just see those opportunities and they say, hey, let me go ahead and market to these people. And in the group that I was in, I mean, I paid thousands of dollars to 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 have them like help me with with like marketing and stuff. And I learned I learned the tactics, but I'm like, I'm not doing this stuff. Like, this is not. So we know what those people are doing when we see it, right? Yeah. Right. And, call it out. and I would see these people who had like a health coaching certification who, you know, they were working with these people with chronic health issues and no business, like it, no business giving any type of information or advice to these people. But if you learn how to market well, it doesn't matter what qualifications you have. It doesn't matter what background you have. I was like, man, I, I did all this, I, all this time to learn about nutrition and these people got certifications and, and they're making, you know, I'm seeing how much money people are making. They're making 20 grand a month, oh, uh, selling people into programs insane. and things like, and they have a certification where they learn nothing about that topic. Oh my. It was a five hour cert online over the weekend. And now they're. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And working with people with like chronic hormone issues and, and telling them they're going to help them balance their hormones and stuff like that. And it's, it, it, yeah, this stuff is so, so common and, and just perpetuated by the online space. And I, I really, my goal initially was to help people like be able to identify that stuff, because if you understand the strategies and tactics that go into it, because I try to talk about that quite a bit, rather than just, 
you know, sometimes I'll call people out directly and stuff like that. But I always try to talk about like the marketing tactics that are behind it, the the things that people are using in order to to persuade you into believing this misinformation or believing they have this magic solution. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting angle, too. Because we don't, you don't see that a lot. A lot of people don't talk about the behind the scenes stuff, and we haven't certainly covered it on here on the podcast either, have we, Beth? Not, not as much. Not, not in great detail. Yeah, like fear, desperation, all that stuff sells. Yeah. And when someone's really desperate and they're they're like hurting, they'll they'll you know believe anything. Find their pain point. Tell them you've emphasized with them. Nobody else is helping them with that pain point, but you can help right. them. And you've got, and you, you just made a couple thousand dollars. Like you. Yep. Made- Find their pain point and scratch their pain point is the first thing they tell you find their pain point and make it worse yep. tell them oh, oh man these digestive issues you're experiencing yeah they're bad now but just wait five years from now 10 years from now it's going to get worse if you don't do something now and if you go to your doctor they're not going to help you so the only option that you have is to follow my secret five-step program into healing your whole digestive system. And and it's exactly what you said, like find the pain point, scratch the pain point, create an us versus them scenario where, Mm -hmm. where you're saying these people are bad, we're good. And then making people make a decision, telling them if you don't choose my route, it's going to get worse. Like, so you just create this, you paint this narrative of like, things are going to get worse. Like they, I put together a webinar through this marketing program. This is like four years ago. I completely like, I, I joined it. They helped me put it together, all the stuff. I learned like some of these tactics and I was just like, as soon as I started running my ads, I was like, I can't, I can't do this. The people I'm talking to are so confused. Like we were, I was getting people on the phone as a part of this. And they were just like, they had done detoxes and all sorts of crazy stuff. And I'm like, man, the people who are falling for this stuff are the people who have fallen for this stuff in the past. And the stories that I was hearing was like people spending 20 grand on different, they bought saunas and and they completely, like one lady I met, she bought a new car because she was convinced that her car had mold. She took out all of her carpets in her house. She like got her attic and ducts clean because she worked with this mold specialist who convinced her that, you know, her chronic health condition was mold. And it's just like, you just have a chronic health condition. Like did these happen? Sometimes there's not a answer for them. Sometimes it's, you just have to manage it and live with it. And it's hard to hear that sometimes. And so it's easier when someone says, Hey, it's, it's this, or it's this, or it's something very clear that we can, we can act on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You have ethics, obviously. Um, a lot of these people, I mean, they, they don't have ethics. Let's just call it as it is. I mean, they're, they're doing things right. that way. What's interesting too, is usually when you talk with those people, um, the marketers, their, their, their price point always changes if you don't commit right at that point. Like this offer is only good for the next 24 hours. The price is going up after that. Like that, that's just one of those tactics too, that I, I despise when I see that type of stuff. I'm like, mm-hmm. like it doesn't matter. <laughs> yes. Yeah, creating the scarcity too. I was extreme academic when I first got online. Like you should have seen my content back then. It was like seven citations, like very bland sentences. You know what I mean? So like this, this marketing stuff and trying to learn about this, like helped me to be a better communicator overall. But I just, it peeled back the curtain of like, oh, this is how these supplement companies and this is how these, these coaches who are, you know, seven figure coaches or whatever, six figure coaches, this is what they're doing. They're just... It's just very shady and and 
it's playing upon people's you know natural tendencies and and just finding those ways to to manipulate them and and use them to persuade people and and this is done for for marketing programs but this is also done for any type of diet you know everyone's doing oh, the, yeah. sa- the same type of thing they're they're saying oh the government told us to eat carbs and they they damaged our health so this is why you got to go keto and it's it's still using those same strategies of the us versus them it's still mm-hmm. kind of playing to those same marketing strategies for for all of you know all of this industry yeah oh man it's really hard to to especially you know when you're coaching someone that there's so much misinformation that when you're trying to coach them they don't even believe what you're saying they're like but that they're still trying to search right for that something um, so it's consistently like, okay, like put, yeah, he had to put the fucking blinders on and stop like looking this way and that. Did you hear this? Did you hear that? What do you think of this? It's like, okay, it really comes down to the basics, essential things, right? So many people, yeah. Yeah. I tell my the people that follow me on social media, I do this often. Luckily, people that I work with now, because they follow me on social media, they don't most of them follow me on social media first. So they they usually have cut through all that now i don't have mm-hmm. to deal with that anymore it used to be it used to be like the first three or four sessions of working with someone it would just be like why yeah. are seed oils not toxic why do i why do i not have to eat organic i just have to go right. through all these simple topics that they had been fed misinformation about but now i have all that stuff online so i could just direct people to the right sources and say hey go look at this and and yeah. then come back to me and they they understand it but yeah that that's a big challenge is you know people just believe so much stuff and like you said you have to put the blinders on. I always tell people who follow me on, on my social media, I say this all the time, like, please just stop following these people. Mm-hmm. Keep it to five or six sources in this space. Like you don't need a hundred different sources. And, you know, people will say, well, I want to hear both sides of the story. And the reality is there's just one side. <laughs> there's the science. There's, and then there's evidence and information and what's correct. And then there's people who are trying to market whatever fancy method they're trying to sell you. There's an endless number of possibilities. And if you're always taking in that information, you're always going to be confused. You're going to think about, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And you're going to always just be questioning what you're doing. And it's it's going to get in the way of, of actually doing what you need to do. <laughs> and I know you are constantly pressing the simple messages of what everyone mm-hmm. needs to be doing. And it's the same stuff that I'm telling people, you know, I, I, I always get people to tell me this, Oh, you got a PhD in nutrition just to say like these simple, these simple things, like people will criticize me. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I got it to understand nutrition. This is the simple stuff that most people need. When I work with someone who has like a serious digestive issue or some, or, you know, type two diabetes or something like that. Yeah. I may need to dip into various, you know, pockets of knowledge that aren't what I'm constantly talking about on social media. But when I'm communicating to a large audience, mm-hmm. thank you. we have to talk about what's going to be best for the most amount of people. And there's right. a lot of times people will turn around and say, well, you're saying eat bread, but gluten is a problem for people who are celiac. And mm-hmm. there's always caveats to everything. In oh, nutrition, yeah. there, there's gray area in every single topic. There's instances where individuals don't tolerate milk well, or don't tolerate, you know, various foods or might benefit from a more plant-based diet or might benefit from removing plants from their diet to a certain degree. But those aren't what 
people should be communicating about on social media because right. those are very medical extreme, conditions. And- yeah, medical conditions, extreme mm-hmm. instances. And, you know, those things are where you need to work with someone. You don't need to be just taking information from social media. If you have a health condition where you really need support, you need a professional on your side, you need information from someone who's who's highly qualified in that topic, not just someone who's providing general information on social media. Now, it's good to just get the general information and learn about nutrition from that perspective. But yeah, there's always going to be different circumstances where where someone does need more detailed information, detailed support. In those cases, it's best to to go away from social media or go, go to someone who is the expert on that topic, which is nice because you can also oftentimes find that on social media. Very true. Yeah. And along those lines too, um, you were talking about inflammatory foods, right? And that's a popular one that we see is like X food is inflammatory or seed oils are inflammatory. And that's one of those ones that is just so, so popular out there right now. And they can't even like define what inflammation even means for, for, to start with. And then they can't even tell you how, like how and why is it making you inflamed and what, and what dose. Right. Right. Like, why are you inflamed? (laughs) Yeah. yeah in, inflammation is is such a it's just it, it's a marketing term like mm-hmm. a lot of these things are marketing terms and they're not scientific terms so inflammation is a scientific term but the way that it's being used calling foods inflammatory in that way is is a is a marketing term it, we when we hear the word inflammatory that scares us we think fire we think heat we think something bad is happening so if you label a food as inflammatory that that creates an emotional response for people that, that can move them away from eating. This is oftentimes more about persuasion and marketing than it is about actual science and information. When you talk about a food from a from an inflammation standpoint, no food necessarily causes inflammation predictably and reliably in every person. The most inflammatory thing about our diet is over consumption of energy. Like if you eat too much energy and then you gain weight and that leads to excess fatty acid deposition in various areas throughout our body, that is the most inflammatory thing that can happen from our diet in most cases. Now, there are instances, like I mentioned a second ago, where someone might have an inflammatory response to gluten, and it's due to an underlying genetic predisposition and other factors that kind of led them to have that. So sometimes some foods can contribute to an inflammatory response in people, but to label a food as inflammatory is, is really just meant to to scare people. And, and yeah. when you see people talking about nutrition from a scary standpoint, I mean, you just want to run away. Like that, that, that's the thing mm-hmm. that you want to okay. r- run away from the most because that's what creates so many eating disorders. Like I see it yeah. all the time of people mm-hmm. who are so scared of foods. And it's because the information that they're taking in is due to the algorithms that are what's being fed to them due to the algorithms and what blows up due to algorithms is fear. So you see, you know, you see this bad thing about nutrition and this bad thing about nutrition and this bad thing about nutrition. And never did you learn anything like the piece that people really need is to learn like you need to be learning. So you have to think about like, okay, is Sometimes people make it look like they're teaching you, but oftentimes what they're doing is they're just, they're persuading you and making it seem like they're actually teaching you. And and you have to really pay attention to that. Is this person really allowing, like, are they telling me about a topic and allowing me to make my own decision about, you know, what I should do with this topic? Or are they saying, hey, this is what you absolutely have to do. 
there's a difference between those two approaches. And you'll see oftentimes on social media, people say, oh, this, you know, chia seed is bullshit and stay away from it because it's going to kill you and blah, blah, blah. And they're just trying to indoctrinate you into a belief system as opposed to teaching you. And that's never going to get you anywhere because maybe you start believing some of these things now, but then you run into another piece of information. You start believing some new things next week and you just keep jumping from belief to belief and trying all these various things that don't get you anywhere as opposed to developing a foundation of knowledge. Like if you start learning about nutrition, what a protein is, what a carbohydrate is, what a fat is, why they're important, what what your energy needs are. If you learn these basic foundational nutrition topics and in, in this knowledge that they should be teaching in school, to be honest, but, but most people don't That's what know. I was just going to say. Yeah. Yeah. We should be teaching. I mean, and sometimes they do, or sometimes they try to, but they have like some PE coach teaching it. Cause I've seen curriculum where they try to incorporate some of this information, but then they have a PE coach teaching it who has no idea. And, and so it's really like doing a better job of training people in the schools to teach about these topics, but these, they should be taught early on. Like this oh, would man. prevent a lot yeah. of these issues. If people knew what a calorie is and not, not from a, Oh my God, the calories, this thing that, that makes me fat. Like right. it's, it's a unit of energy. It, right. It's how we measure yeah. our energy needs in our body. It's how we meet our energy needs in our body. If you learn about nutrition from an early age in that way, like it, it, it provides you freedom. It provides you, it helps arm you against BS and it helps you to make informed decisions about your nutrition. Because at the end of the day, no one can tell you what you should be eating. What you're going to eat is going to be dependent on your taste preferences, what makes you feel good, what you have access to. You know, there's so many factors that go into it. So understanding what's important, knowing the foundational knowledge, a little bit of background on nutrition. You don't have to listen to podcasts for 30 years, you know, and constantly be changing your methods. Like I always tell people, like, I want you to eventually, like, probably not even need my content and yeah. you know, just tune Absolutely. in for entertainment purposes. But at some point, like, this isn't something that you should be obsessing over for your entire life. Like, nutrition is a part of our, it's something that you're going to have to do forever. And if like a quality nutrition pattern causes you to be obsessive, that that's a problem. You have to eat forever. So eating a healthy diet is something that's going to be important for the rest of your life. So if it's burdensome and difficult to follow and, you know, doesn't meet your taste preferences at all or any of that, you're not going to do it forever. And that defeats the whole purpose. Like the whole purpose is 20, 30, 40 years from now, nutrition really makes a big difference. That's when it that's when it really like early on, you know, changing your diet, you don't see that much of a difference between other people, 10, 15, 20 years of doing those same habits. That's when it really starts to you start to see a separation of, oh, wow, this person lives a certain type of lifestyle. And it shows on the fact that, you know, you're you're healthy, you know, later on in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And going back to what you said about with the marketing and things like that and not teaching people how to do this on their own. That's what a lot of those programs actually do is keep them coming back to them for more because they're relying yeah. on their system or their, their supplement or their program to keep them getting the results or make them feeling good rather than actually teaching them any type of sustainable habits or, or lifestyle. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, t- teaching is not as profitable. Teaching is yeah. not as profitable. You have to have a massive, you know, audience to make a living off teaching people like foundational knowledge. And, and you know, that's that's what I prefer to do. I do about half of that, half one to one in group work right now. But yeah, the teaching side of things is where I think the the gaps are in this space, even in the healthcare space. Like, you know, we're taught, we, we send people to a dietitian for one session. We really need to be giving people access to information and give them access to the information on how to manage cholesterol because there's a quality evidence base there already. And, you know, we can, we can do that for, at a low cost, like giving people access to this stuff from a healthcare perspective. So yeah, that's, that's the reason I got into this. I like teaching. I, that's my favorite part of this. And I want to see this get translated because the the research on nutrition for health benefits, like, yeah, for, for healthy aging and all that, great, amazing. But also from like the application of if you take someone with type 2 diabetes, if they follow the nutrition plan, they can pretty much guarantee that they're going to reverse it in, if, if you catch them in the first couple of years. And so there's like a massive opportunity from a healthcare standpoint as well for us to actually start providing some of this stuff in for insurance companies to cover it, um, hopefully at some point, because it's the most effective therapy right now for many conditions, nutrition and lifestyle. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of it's it's hard to to deliver it. That's the challenge. Like you can't just give it to people in a pill. Yeah. And then if you start paying for people to see a, a dietitian or exercise physiologist, there's going to be huge variation in the information they get, how how effective it is. So I think the next step in getting this more more of a part of the healthcare system overall is really packaging this information in a way that that can it can reach more people and having it delivered in that way. Yeah. Interesting. Going back to the, like, imagine if we just educated our kids about like calories and protein and building a healthy plate in the beginning, like over, like, like you're teaching a math class, you're literally teaching a nutrition class as part of your curriculum. Yep. And we could cut through a lot of the bullshit. On that note, my son is actually in a nutrition sciences class right now in seventh grade. Um, and I'm actually taking a lot of interest in it. So I'm quizzing him a lot. And because I want to know what he's learning to see nice. I, the quarter just started last week. So I don't know. I don't have any feedback to give yet, but I'm very encouraged by the fact that the, he has a nutrition science class as, as mm-hmm. a seventh grader. That's awesome. I have never heard of that. So I've, yeah, I've seen nutrition in health classes and health textbooks, and I've looked into that curriculum quite a bit. And, you know, it's, it's decent advice. But the problem is the person who's teaching it. Like they're, it's always yeah, yeah. those health classes are typically taught by just whoever, like whoever they could get to to take the one or two. They don't have the budget classes. for it, or, or yeah. So it's actual... they, they're usually it's it's a coach, and I've definitely heard some negative things about what people actually learned. But again, if, if we can, as Beth mentioned, like this would probably prevent, I mean, the, it would take time, you know, 15, mm-hmm, 20 yeah. years, but 20 years from now, we'd see some significant changes in population health if if we did Absolutely. that. And, and a lot of this industry would, would be shifted. And I think we're getting there because there's so many people in their 40s and, and 50s who have been dieting their whole lives and who are completely fed up with it. And, and so I think 
there's a shift now towards more evidence-based sources and and but that's happening you know slowly over the last few years and i think it's just going to take quite a bit of time to see the the full effect of that shift yeah yeah it's sure. like a gen- it's a generational thing right like the next yeah. generation will start reaping the benefits my generation <laughs> I'm serious. It's like, seriously, no, my mom, you know, I grew up in the seventies and she was always on a diet, like Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, yeah. you name it. Like she's done it all. And, and that's how I got into my disordered eating from watching her. And I work with a lot of women, the same forties, fifties, the eat your plate club, we call it. Mm-hmm. Most of the people I work with probably fit that demographic forties, fifties women. Mm-hmm. I hear it all the time. My mom was dieting from when I was a kid and I've been dieting my whole life. And like they this age group on diets. Is, is fed up, but, but also just starting to see through that and show their kids like different, you know, in the anti-diet movement and all of that. So I think slowly starting to shift a little bit away from that, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, I mean, dieting, dieting 30, 40, 50 years. Like I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And it's, it's crazy because it's just like food is such an important part of life. It's supposed to be like something we enjoy and in the relationship that so many people have with food is like a horrible spouse. Like it's like the worst, you know, type of thing where they're, they love it, but they hate it and they're scared of it. And, you know, it's yeah. just like this, this horrible relationship. And that, that saddens me the most. Cause I love food. Like that's one of yeah. the reasons I got into this. Is I know. Like, delicious food is like one of the great pleasures in life. And like, I, I definitely like, I don't to, to have to like, avoid that or think that you have to avoid that for for health purposes is just so misguided to be fair in the 70s we literally didn't know anything about nutrition like we knew nothing about nutrition we didn't know much about nutrition in in 1990 the the amount of studies that were done back then were so limited like 99% of the scientific studies that have been published in nutrition have been published since 2000. Like this is, we had almost no information to go off. So like government guidelines, like they were done with the best intention, but they had such crap data to go off of. They had like, oh, this country eats grains and they don't. So this might be a healthy thing to do. Like the, the data was so crappy compared to what it is today. And so, you know, back then there wasn't, an evidence-based, they didn't even exist. Like we didn't know what, like we barely even knew what changed body weight at that point. And that was like, even that, that was even debated, you know, in terms of like the calorie and energy balance model, like most of those studies weren't done until, you know, eighties, nineties. And so that's a challenge too, is like, we, we want to look back and be like, oh man, they got fooled. And you know, seventies was so bad and people were, but it was just, we just didn't know. We had no idea. We knew that nutrition did something, but like, no one really had a good sense of like how you're supposed to eat, what's beneficial, how to lose weight, how to gain muscle. Um, you know, bodybuilders back then would just eat chicken and rice all day. <laughs> they had no, like they didn't really know how many grams of protein as much. Like they were just, you just eat certain foods and eat them over and over again. And and you have no idea like why or how or what it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Don't take blind advice from bodybuilders. <laughs> Make sure you trust them and they're, they're legit first. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's probably why my mother was like running herself to the ground with cardio. I know cardio was like a big thing back in the seventies, eighties. Now women were really strength training then. 
not really many people no. to be honest nobody straight trans let's let's be let's be real here we're trying to change that narrative for it's, sure it's getting but... a little better but yeah i, I, agree. Yeah, I mean I the, agree. The, the statistics i think it's like one in ten people say that they strength train at least twice a week that's like self-report and, and people lie like crazy absolutely when you ask people about exercise habits like the 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 difference between what people say and what is actually measured is substantially different um in in some of these studies so yeah not enough people are straight with nutrition on a too. basis right now yeah, yeah nutrition too yeah like for the sure. 1200 calorie one right like that's a, something we see a lot is somebody says they're eating 1200 calories but they're not actually tracking it um they're they're mm-hmm. self-reporting it even if they are working with somebody and then when they actually do start tracking it's like oh i was eating 2200 calories a day or something no, I mean, it's it's so easy to just not know what you're eating. You know, butter. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're so mindless about this. And it's so crazy to me. It's like the demonization of like calories and stuff from like the anti-diet crowd is just, it doesn't make sense. Like we're so harmful. You have to fuel your body with energy. And that's what this is. So understanding your energy needs is just so important. You're acting like it does, they don't exist and it's a bad thing. Well, you, you right. can't change the fact that this exists. So let's actually try educating people and help them understand, right? It's like trying to fuel your car without a, without a gas gauge. Like mm-hmm. It's like just taking it off and saying like, oh, let, let's try to figure out when my car needs gas and not. Yeah, hunger cues can help, but a lot of us are we can be busy, we can forget to eat, or yep. a lot of us are trained Caffeinated. To, yeah, or, or a lot of us are trained to just be hungry all the time because we've mm-hmm. always eaten all the time. And so, you know, we're, we're, we've lost our ability to respond to those hunger cues in a way that's appropriate to meet our needs for a lot of people. And um, yeah, I, I just think it's so important for, for everyone. I, I know that some people really have to avoid it because they have very, you know, sensitive, you know, they're very sensitive around having to try calories or anything like oh, that. Yeah, absolutely. For most people, it, it's just, it's such a quality experience to gain that that understanding of of your energy needs, your energy intake, and then just learn how to balance that all outright and do it in a way that's flexible for you. And, and once you do that, like you can back off of like having to think about nutrition so much, you know, just kind of stick with that for good. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, that, I'm I'm case in point for that. I used to track calories, and I think Beth, you do every once in a while. You're in a fat loss phase right now, but I haven't tracked calories in a couple of years. I just I learned how to eat in a way that works for me. You know, I eat mindfully and that's what I want the goal to be that for everybody too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the key. What people should know is like, if you're not aware of what you're taking in, it's really good to try to figure that out. Like you said, it's important to know your energy balance. Right. But they're like, well, no, it's it's so disordered to track calories. It's like, but you can't change what you don't know. Yep. So more looking at it as a learning educating experience rather than a toxic one. Yep. Yep. Like Matt said, you don't have to do it forever. Like I, right. I never track calories. I, I can't tell you the last time I tracked calories and because I understand how to feed myself and, and it's good to get into a routine. So something I always recommend to clients is like, if your calorie needs are 1800 per day, eating three meals at 500 calories and one snack at 300 calories and doing that regularly, then you'll learn how to put together 500 calorie meals and it'll just be natural to you. So over time, it's like when you sit down to eat a meal, you're eating 500 calories. Like, and so you know what that looks like, you know what that, 
what types of meals you eat that fit that amount. You know how to go out to eat and hit that amount because you've done it mindfully for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And that's helped you to kind of get into a routine around it. But it it does not doing that. Some people recommend it, but it's oftentimes people who are naturally thin and who don't tend to gain weight or don't have the same hunger hormone response. Like, oh, if I just eat according to how I feel like eating, I will gain weight for sure because I enjoy food too much. And, and but then so, they're also telling you that it, that it's healthy for you to gain weight. Like, you know, the people that are telling you not to track calories and that it's bad for you, they're like, it doesn't matter how heavy you get and how big you get. There's no, it's it's okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that that's a... <laughs> That's when it gets to the extreme levels yeah. of people who are actually denying the impact of excess body weight on overall health. I mean, that's that's undeniable. The 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 nuance in that discussion is that yes, there are people who are obese who are healthier than individuals who are at lower weight because they have healthier lifestyle. Like if you take someone who's who has a BMI of 32 and you compare them to someone who has a BMI of 27, but the person with a BMI of 32 eats fruits and vegetables, they exercise you know, they sleep well, and the person with the 27 doesn't, that person with the 27 is, is going to have a worse overall health trajectory. So I think the important discussion with BMI is like, it's one aspect of overall risk. And oftentimes, doctors particularly will place too much emphasis on it. And it's one aspect of overall risk. It's not a good sensitive marker to to identify like, high levels of muscle mass and stuff like that too. So there's a lot of negatives with that for as well. Like, I mean, my BMI is like a 28 or something like that. Like I'm, I'm because of the amount of muscle mass you have. Yeah. I'm six, one, two fifteen, and I'm probably like 15% body fat, but I'm 28 BMI. So I'm close to, you know, obesity. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm definitely healthier than a lot of people who have like lower BMIs than me. So that's where, you know, BMI is just something that it, was, it has been too over overemphasized as like a marker of health. Like it's, it can indicate certain things, but it doesn't necessarily indicate good health. And someone who has higher body fat level doesn't mean they're metabolically unhealthy. Like there's individuals who have a 32 BMI, they exercise and they're insulin, their their LDL cholesterol, everything's perfect. And it's always has been, and, you know, I've, I've worked with people who I worked with a guy who was, I think he was like 350. His BMI was over 40 and his metabolic health was perfect because he went way more before and he'd been overweight his whole life. He's just one of those guys that just, he has to eat almost nothing to even be where he was at with the 350. He had lost weight though. He improved his metabolic health. He wasn't pre-diabetic or anything. And I'm like, that. those are the instances where that guy probably isn't, he's not going to be able to lose weight to go into a healthy BMI category. But he's doing, you know, enough and doing a lot to improve his health. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he has to go into a healthy BMI category to be healthy. Yeah. Well said. So there's a lot of uh, other misinformation out there that we see a lot. And you said you mentioned this as well, which was the seed oils thing. Where where does that what what is the truth behind seed oils? Because we would lo- we we haven't really talked about this topic on the podcast. Yeah. And where did this uh hate against seed oils come from? I feel like it just popped up like within the past year. Yeah. I, maybe maybe on social media. It it did pop up over the last couple of years. Um seed oils is a it's just a good story. So seed oils were originally, like some of these oils were originally used for other purposes, like for industrial uses. So that makes it a good story. 
It's also a good story because these oils were used in trans fats. So when people were eating trans fats made out of canola oil and other types of seed oils, that was a bad thing. Trans fats have now been removed from the market. They're not good, but it created a good story of like the government introduced these fats to to harm our health. The reality is that seed oils, you know, if you're eating a a canola oil that's unrefined, it's going to be from a health standpoint, probably almost equivalent to like an olive oil. And they're high in vitamin E, they're high in omega-3 fatty acids, like they're high in monounsaturated fats that are the, the fats that are found in olive oil. These things are not harmful. It's just there's good stories behind them. And so when you have a good story, you can't let the truth get in the way of that. Like when, when you're when you're an influencer, like that'll that'll fuck with your your cash inflow. <laughs> yeah, when, when when you have some good stories, like the truth completely goes out the window, and that's why you hear a lot of people use the story of like I, I just posted about this, like the dietary guidelines harmed America's health. Like it's a really good story. This mm. seed oil one is a really good story. the The government told us to eat less animal fat and eat more plant fats and we got less healthy. And so that happened in the 1970s. The government was kind of making those recommendations. And then if you look to now, we're less healthy now. So it must have been that the fact that the government was recommending to go away from butter and and animal fats. So it's a good story from a lot of perspectives, like people who want to talk about, you know, the natural is better We'll talk about how these were, they call them, they always say this, industrial seed oils. They always use that term. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> it's just like, like what, what does that say, mean? Industrial yeah, yeah, exactly. like you, can, you can use animal fat to lubricate machinery too. Does, does that mean that's bad? You know, like. It, exactly. It's it's just a good story. Like you could say industrial animal fat, like before, <laughs> like you say industrial butter. Like what is that? That makes no, like it's the same thing, mm-hmm. but it's it sounds scary when you say yeah. industrial before food. That's why they say it. And so they'll say industrial seed oils, you know, they used to lubricate ships and now they tried to feed them to you to to make millions of dollars. And so these stories, they get more attention than actual facts and information. And so that's where the seed oils thing has has been has come from is just story after story about number one, that they were originally used for other purposes. Number two, that the government forced them down our throat and it impacted our health in a negative way. And then number three, we we truly do eat more of these. And that's not a good thing. Like over the last 30 years, now they make up 24% of our total diet added oils. So we don't just want to be eating added oils, but those are right. coming in the form of, of processed foods. Highly like, processed so what food. happened yeah. was the seed oils, because they're cheap. They, they were produced in mass quantities, so they were just put into all these processed foods. And now we eat a lot more processed foods, so we eat a lot more seed oils. So this is another a good point that someone can make to demonize these is they'll say, oh, well, they're they're thrown in all these processed foods and, you know, that's that's why they're harming our health. Or they'll turn around and say, you know, we've eaten more of these over the last 30 years and, you know, obesity has gone up. So they're they're causing obesity. But all of the studies were people are fed these oils and fed butter or fed some other type of fat. There seems to be overall a health benefit of consuming like a canola oil or a soybean oil versus butter versus a saturated fat. That That's 
what the evidence shows stories are so much funner though so like all all of these different stories about seed oils and stuff like every time i post about this people are like oh people accuse me of like being paid by these companies or whatever and it's just like it's so insane Mm. like the the evidence is very clear like when people eat these oils there's no clear negative health effect but but the stories are just they're so interesting so when you people just latch on to stories, it's 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 sad to me to see that because like I, I know that you know when I hear and I hear it all the time. You hear the same stories over and over again: the lubrication, the the government forcing them down our throat, and and you'll hear the the sugar industry paid uh, the government or something like that to to you know increase or change the dietary guidelines. Like all these different stories are they sound great, but if you're trying to get accurate nutrition information it shouldn't come with a story like the story. I mean, if, if there's a story that, that makes it more interesting, cool. But if the story is the justification for why you should be eating a certain thing or not eating a certain thing like that, that that's not what you want. You want to see evidence of of studies where people were fed these foods or where people ate these foods and see what happened, because we have studies on that for every type of food at this point. So if you want to know, is something benefiting my health or harming my health? And you're trusting someone to give you the right information, you want you want to say, okay, is there studies to show that when people eat this food or not eat this food, that there's positive effects on their health? Because outside of that, you can't really say anything with with much confidence in nutrition if if we haven't fed people this food and seen what happens, because otherwise it's all just speculation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that brings us to. I was just going to say, Matt. Okay. Do you do you want do you want to ask him or do you want me to? Because we we, we both want to know. So. Yeah, I think it's important to find um, yes. different evidence based people that we know and their opinion on new science. So artificial sweeteners. Mm. We know that you did a post recently yeah. where you were talking about this. I'm interested because I like to look at you know I want to know all the the data and what what you think about the new stuff that's coming about. Yeah, stuff. there's been there's been a couple of studies this year. And so yeah. all the studies this year seem to be negative. Um overall before this year, most everything was either neutral or you know not not really a major negative effect. There's a couple of studies this year. There's limitations to these studies, like they're not the best studies that have ever been published. Like there's a big study that comes out of France that was published okay. that showed artificial sweeteners, certain ones, just basically the artificial ones. So it was the aspartame, sucralose. And saccharin were associated with higher rates of cancer, slightly higher rates of cancer. It wasn't that that high um, in terms of risk and then higher rates of cardiovascular disease. And it was like, I think it was like six or 7% for both of them. But this was something that we really haven't shown very much in the past of like people who are consuming these over a long period of time showing negative health outcomes. This could be because this tends to happen in these type of studies where the individuals were consuming artificial sweeteners because They were trying to change their diet and they were trying to avoid sugar because they had some underlying health issue or something Mm. like that. So that could be like the driving factor. But there was also a study that was published earlier this year where they fed people, they fed people different artificial sweeteners. They looked at their blood glucose control and they found that individuals who were taking in, I think it was sucralose, had a slightly higher blood sugar response throughout the day than the other individuals. And I think aspartame did it as well. But in this study, you know, it was, it was a mild increase, but it's 
it's just a little bit of evidence that is kind of stacking up to show that some of these artificial sweeteners, in my opinion, like I've consumed a bit less of them. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. I've been I've been a consumer of artificial sweeteners of all of them <laughs> pretty much my whole life. But I have taken in a little bit less of them. Just because, be more mindful of them. Then. Yeah, right. it, exactly. I'm not entirely concerned because these studies weren't like, oh, wow, there's, you know, there's been 10 studies that were published that show this increase in cancer, increase in heart disease. But there's been, I think there's been about three or four large trials that show that individuals who consume these artificial sweeteners over a lifetime or over a long period of time have a slightly increased risk of of heart disease. And so that's what's caused me to just question whether or not they're 100% safe. So before I would probably say, yeah, they're 100% safe. I wouldn't be concerned about them at all. Now I'm like, uh, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't feel comfortable saying that, um, but I do feel comfortable still saying they're a better alternative to, let's say, for example, if you were going to have a Coke in the afternoon um, as like, you know, as a satisfying drink, having a Diet Coke instead of that, is still going to be a wiser strategy than having the Coke. But if if you had a water that probably or like a tea or something without any art of, or just a Splenda sweetened beverage, because th- these don't seem to show any negative effects of Splenda and the monk fruit in terms of metabolism or anything like that. But again, these we don't have enough data on these either because they're kind of newer into the market. But I'm not hugely concerned. And I still, you know, I still use like sugar-free syrup and still drink Diet Coke and stuff, but I'm definitely a little bit more mindful overall of like, okay, is there another option for me uh, that's going to be, you know, that's going to still allow me to get that taste or whatever and and not, you know, consume like one of these specific artificial sweeteners. See, I love, because this is how you know you're science-based and evidence-based because you're like, yeah, potentially this might have some negative impact down the road, but you know, I'm still just being more mindful of it. I'm mm-hmm. not avoiding it because it, there, it doesn't really suggest that we need to do that. Yeah. I mean, because all the short-term studies, like when we feed it to some people, like it doesn't show like these major negative effects. Sometimes though, specifically with sucralose and saccharin, their insulin goes up a little bit sometimes or blood glucose will go up a little bit. And that's what I think is kind of driving some of these negative effects that we're seeing in these larger studies is that maybe there is some slight metabolic effect. And there's some evidence to suggest that that's occurring as a consequence of how that sweetener is impacting our gut microbiome. So the fact that it's it's not that it's a, we're absorbing it and it's impacting our metabolism, it's that it's impacting our microbiome and our microbiome is impacting our glucose response or our insulin response as a result of the way that it's, it's having that effect. So it's not directly potentially mm-hmm. impacting it, but it's indirectly be- because it's impacting the microbiome. Yeah. Due to changes in the microbiome. So that's, we would, the evidence is so, you know, there's just not a lot of evidence. There was one study that was published earlier this year that kind of suggested that, but I mean, these things have been pretty well studied and, the negative effects, if they are there, are going to be pretty mild at best, and definitely a better option, as I mentioned earlier, than like than like sugar. So like, yeah. my son loves pancakes. He eats pancakes on a regular basis. Like I use a sugar-free syrup that has all three of those artificial sweeteners, and I don't think twice about it. Like I'm not that concerned about it. He's not. It's the dose that matters as well. 
this is where I think that it's probably the biggest concern for some people. There are some people, and I've met these people who who use it as a crutch to not have to drink water, and who oh yeah, who are constantly drinking artificially sweetened beverages so that they could constantly satisfy like a sweet tooth. And I think those individuals are probably the ones that need to probably be more mindful of their consumption more than anything else. And and so that's, and there's probably <laughs> benefits to, to, to being more mindful because there's also a little bit of evidence to show that like when we have more sweet foods, we crave more sweet foods, we get less satisfaction out of sweet foods. So like if you're having a bunch of artificial sweeteners, when you eat a piece of candy, for example, it doesn't taste as sweet. So you feel like you need more sometimes. Because there's they're actually sweeter, right? The artificial sweeteners on sugar. So, yep. So, so there's a shift in taste perception that can occur. And I'm more concerned about this in children than in adults. But like, if you're giving children sweetened beverages all the time and artificial sweeteners and things like that, like their taste preferences kind of shift to where they need more sweet foods to get that same like sweet satisfaction. And kids are, I see it at birthday parties and stuff. I'm like, how do they even eat all this sweet stuff? Like, but, but I, I I know that, I mean, going to my kid's school and stuff, going to my son's school, like for lunch, like all the kids are drinking sweetened beverages. And that I think is, even if it's artificial sweeteners or sugar, like if we're constantly consuming sweetened fluids, I think that can probably have a negative effect on our overall taste preferences. It breaks my heart that we don't like water as a society. It really does. Because like water is amazing. I mean, give me a cold glass of water, some ice cubes in there over anything. Yeah. Most of the time. I'll be Same. happy. I'll be happy. Yeah, I enjoy it. But yeah, I, I've been around so many kids that don't even, that will not drink water. You put water in front of them, they won't touch it. But it, I, I think it really just comes down to a lot of times they're just, they're giving juice. You want juice, you want juice. And it's, it leads to some of those taste preferences. But with the artificial sweeteners, I think that that's just something to be mindful of. If you're on the higher end of consumption, that's where it can probably be problematic. And if you're doing that, switching to Stevia, it's probably going to be perfectly fine in terms of overall risk. Okay, there we go. There we go. What is the higher end of the consumption? What, in your in your opinion, what where should we try to get? I'm, so, so the averages where there's risk, where where these mild risk increases are seen. Is it about like one packet per day or one drink per day or like what, what would be in like one Diet Coke per day? I mean, the higher end of consumption, I'm talking about the tail, tail end. Like, I think most people are like one per day. And then we have, I think there's there's a small percentage of consumers that go way on this tail end, just from my own experience of people who I've met that have just like, when they wake up, they're drinking diet drinks when they're just drinking it all the time. And they're having the crystal waters and the the diet drinks and just going back and forth from all these different artificially flavored. Reel that in a little bit. Yeah, that that's where it's like, now you might want to re- exactly like reel that one in. But otherwise, I wouldn't be too concerned overall. As long as your overall diet lifestyle, you know, you're focusing on the other things like this is this is a small factor. Yeah. Are you sleeping? Are you eating fruits and vegetables? Like all of these other factors matter so much more. So if it's, you know, if you're having some artificial sweeteners as a, as a part of an overall healthy diet and, and it's something that you enjoy and is satisfying, no issue whatsoever. I wouldn't worry about that at all. Thank you for that. I appreciate awesome. that. that, yes. that was a- I, I I know I was like, wow, like, are we going to start seeing more people talk more about this? And I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you did too, because mm-hmm. um, it just shows you're not biased, honestly. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I try not to be. I mean, we all, I think we all have certain biases. And when I talked about that, I actually, there was a couple of people who were like, Hey, you know, they were, they didn't, they didn't like my take on, on talking about some of the negatives, but I think that, yeah, we, we do tend to get in biases. Like in the evidence-based crowd, it's like, Hey, you can't, you can't talk bad about artificial sweeteners, but it's, you know, there's a gray area. And, and I don't think that they're, I don't think they're completely, the dominant narrative is they're completely hundred percent safe. And I think that there's a little bit off of that of like, it might want to just be careful on the higher end of consumption. Okay. Amazing. We have a lot of golden nuggets in this podcast. We do. Yeah. We do. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Before you go, Adrian, um, can you plug yourself? Where can people find you? And do you have any type of programs or anything if people did want to work with you? Yeah. Yeah. So Instagram at Dr. Adrian Chavez. So Dr. Period Adrian Period Chavez is the best place to find me. Uh, you can find links to everything from there. And then the Nutrition Science Podcast is the name of my podcast. And as you guys mentioned, I recently did an episode on artificial sweeteners. So when we, when I cover these topics, I, I usually have quite a bit of research to talk about and just kind of talk about what that research means in terms of decision making, because that's the hard piece is like, there's a lot of studies and there's a lot of information. Like, what does that mean in your life? And so I try to do my best to, to break down those topics. And like we just talked about right now, like just come up with a simple answer about what, what you need to be doing. Absolutely. Everybody go check that out. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, Adrian. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So why not share it with a friend who needs to hear it? Send us a DM on Instagram or email us at cutthecrappod at gmail.com and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cutthecrappodcast. As always, we appreciate you and thanks for being here.